It's Johanna Masca, and this week on Press Advance, I invited America First Policy Initiative Chief Communications Officer Mark Lauder. There's a lot of talk about who's going to win the Democratic or the Republican primaries. And most likely, what we're seeing right now is it's going to be Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. Those are the personalities, though, and I wanted to focus on the policy. So with Mark, I ask him what it's going to be like on day one, 2025, if a Republican president is elected. Well, I think the first thing on day one you got to do is take steps to reseal the border, uh, stop the flow of millions of illegal immigrants into our country. And then from an economic standpoint, I think, you know, the first action you have to take is to lift the moratorium, the regulatory roadblocks that the Biden administration has erected to stop American energy dominance. And it's not just about drilling, because uh, obviously, you know, we do need to do that, but it's also about refining and, and making sure that we have refining capacity so we can actually take that oil and turn it into usable product, both for Americans at the gas pump and obviously other uses as well. Let's get into both of those things, Mark, because I hear this a lot from Republicans. And, you know, I think Democrats also want to see immigration reform. Talk about the sealing of the border because Trump had four years He had, you know, a Congress on his side at the beginning (laughs) and still did have trouble with the border. I mean, people who are coming here for refugee status end up in cells that, of course, that was the whole lock them in cages. How does that actually happen? Well, I think the first thing we have to do is we have to break with the current president of the Biden administration that views this as a processing problem. They keep asking for more money from Congress and more money to process more illegal immigrants into our country. What we need to do is establish a deterrent. And that's what you saw happening when President Trump was in office through the Remain in Mexico policy and other actions that they took is that you do not have a right to just come into the United States illegally or claim asylum when most asylum claims are going to be rejected and wait here with a green card in the middle of our country for possibly years on end until your case is heard. The Remain in Mexico policy was so successful because the migrants who were considering making that dangerous journey, considering paying the cartels, realized they're not just going to get a free pass in here for sometimes five, six, seven years while they wait. They've got to stay in Mexico and they didn't want to stay in Mexico. So it actually deterred them from making the journey itself. Obviously, you've got to continue to build out and finish the border wall as much as you possibly can. But you also need new technology to detect fentanyl coming across. You need more manpower. But the biggest thing we have to do is stop attracting migrants, whether it's through federal policy or state policies that encourage them from breaking our laws and coming across the border to being a deterrent saying, you're not getting here. We will hear your asylum claim. It's most likely going to be rejected, but we will hear it. And you will wait in Mexico while you wait for that hearing. Galesburg, Illinois is a place I grew up. And a lot of people fear immigrants are coming to take their jobs. The history of America is such, I mean, my family's immigrants. I'm imagining your family is immigrants because we're not Native Americans. Over The course of history, immigrants have come to America, you know, for the same reasons that 
the original settlers came for freedom from persecution, freedom from, you know, religious persecution, and they've been able to live their lives and add to the economy. What is it that the America First agenda sees in terms of immigrants coming to America? How can they come if not through a refugee status or a processing mechanism by which to come to the country? Well, you can come here legally. Uh, you can apply for, uh, you know, a green card. You can apply for legal status to be here. And we are a country of immigrants and we want to remain a country of immigrants. But what we have to do is make sure that those immigrants are prepared to be able to contribute to our economy, to contribute to our society. They have the skills that are necessary to get a job and, and to support their families and basically add to the fabric of America. But even if you go back during the Great Migration period, all of those boats, all of those folks that came through Ellis Island, when they signed that book, it wasn't just signing the book. They also had to prove that they could be uh, sponsored, that they had jobs, they had a way of sustaining themselves. They weren't going to be a burden on society. But they were not taking people who arrived at Ellis Island in mass and shipping them back to their country. There was a health check and you had to come with the desire to work. But that's what a lot of people are coming to America with today. But going through Ellis Island, going through those checks were the legal steps at that time. You know, fleeing economic poverty is not a legal reason to seek asylum. You even mentioned it a few moments ago. You have to prove that you are being persecuted by the government for your religion, for your political beliefs, for an actual reason. I mean, asylum seekers are claiming asylum from persecution, coming here just to seek a better life or because you don't have great economic opportunities or your kids don't have great schools, why those are not reasons to claim asylum. You can go through the steps and we encourage people to go through the steps to come to America legally much like those immigrant ancestors of ours did going through Ellis Island, they had to prove whatever the steps they had to prove, they had to go through that. That was the legal process. Illegally crossing the border, illegally and fakely claiming asylum, getting a work permit and a green card. And in some cases, we're seeing court dates that are actually not until 2031. Right, because we don't have the status to process a lot of people. We have courts that are overwhelmed with cases. I mean, I think there are ways to expedite that. The Senate is currently working on legislation that, as I understand, some Senate Republicans, including the senator from Texas, have been working very closely with the White House on. Now, from what I understand, the House has said dead upon arrival. Can you tell me if there was a way that there could be a compromise before 2025? Do you think from the Republican point of view that it is a smart thing for them to take? Well, I think if you could get H.R. 2 attached, which is the bill that has already passed the House of Representatives, which actually provides real solutions and reinstates policies that have been proven to work, then there could be a discussion. But the Senate is not going to take that up. And so really, that's why you see so many Republicans, both in the House and in the Senate, saying this compromise is dead on arrival. The thing we have to realize is that no law has changed between 2019 and 2024. This is not a problem created by Congress. This is a problem by the current administration that refuses to enforce the laws that are already on the books or use the authorities they already have from using it as a deterrent. I mean, we had 40,000 illegal immigrants cross the border in December of 2019. We have 
302,000 immigrants crossed the border in December of 2023. Nothing changed except the occupant of the White House and his order to refuse to enforce the laws and the powers he already has. When I look at the Republicans who say Biden's come in and now there's this open border, the cartels use that language against us when we say there's an open border when there's not. I saw backlash for Democrats. I mean, when I moved out to Los Angeles, I had people tell me they believed Obama was deporter in chief. There's a lot of Democrats who have been trying to dissuade cartels from abusing human beings that are coming to America. You know, I really fundamentally believe, and I know America First has a big component of faith on their website that, you know, if we build a wall and let people starve on the other side, we're not solving a problem. So I guess, you know, I wonder if our rhetoric isn't contributing to the problem. What do you think about that? Well, I think Joe Biden made it very clear that he was going to change, even in his uh, transition period and leading up to his inauguration, that he was basically going to open the borders and they are open. No, he said that he wanted comprehensive immigration reform. He said it was going to be the first thing he did. Obviously, it has not gotten done. The Senate supposedly is working on it. Well, comprehensive immigration reform is not going to secure the border. They are looking to actually, you know, give a pathway to citizenship to people who have come into our country illegally. Kamala Harris just said that on, on a network a couple of days ago, and they have no interest in serving as deterrence. And when you hand someone who comes across illegally a court date for seven years and a green card, that's not a deterrent. That's an attraction. Come here. Come to California. You're going to get free health care. You're going to get free education, free food, free housing, free transportation, and a court date in seven years that you're probably not going to show up to anyway. That's not a deterrent. I know people, you probably know people who have lived in this country their entire lives. They don't know the country that they're from originally. If we sent them back, one, we're losing. Some of them have businesses. You know, these people are contributing to the economy. They're contributing to Social Security, though they can't draw it. What are we going to do with those human beings that is not going to create more resentment for our country? I mean, it's an interesting dilemma because we do have a Congress that has not actually done the necessary steps of immigration reform. And I do understand Trump was actually close on some of the, you know, I guess, qualified immigration reform. So those for, you know, trained folks to come to America. We haven't had that in 20 plus years, right? So what are we going to do with these human beings who have been here for 20 plus years now? to solve their problem, to solve America's problem in a humane way. Well, I think many people uh, on the right have said, look, the first thing we have to do is stop the problem at hand, seal the border, deal with the crisis we have at hand, and then we can have a broader discussion about what to do with folks who've been here, as you pointed out, for decades or for years. But we've got to stop the problem at hand. And I think that's the, really the most pressing need right now. The number of illegal immigrants who have come into our country under Joe Biden is about 9 million people. That is more than the population of Los Angeles and Chicago combined. That is more than, I believe, 35 states that we have allowed in illegally, unvetted in the last three years of this administration. And, and it should tell you something, when illegal immigrants don't run away from border protection, 
They run to border protection. They want to be caught. I think the world is looking for a compassionate America that can give people who are fleeing persecution, fleeing cartels, fleeing rapists, fleeing terrible things. They want to be caught because they want a just America that's going to help them. I mean, I wish that Biden would have said when we had people clinging to our planes in Afghanistan, the world wants an engaged America. And we haven't been that because we've been so divided amongst ourselves. I think it's interesting. So going back to day one, you're saying new executive orders essentially remain in Mexico again, those kinds of preventative things. You're going to work on trying to get immigration reform. The courts are going to tie it up no matter who does it, unless it's some sort of bipartisan deal that could be enforced. But then the federal agencies, I have heard various scenarios for Republicans coming in about ridding the government of certain federal agencies that they believe is bureaucratic glut. We've got all of these various agencies. So tell me about that. What kind of reform is the America First agenda going to eliminate in terms of agencies? Well, I'm not going to get into specifics in terms of the agencies. You know, obviously we need to cut back spending on the federal government. We do not have a revenue problem. We have a spending problem. We spend too much money. And in many cases, we spend money just to spend money. So I think what we need to do is put the federal government on a diet. And whether that is specific departments within agencies or whether that is specific agencies themselves, we need to reevaluate why they exist. Are they actually helping the problem? Or could, say, some of that federal money just be given to the states in terms of block grants to do the same thing, reduce the size of the federal government? Remember that we're not the ones that are supposed to be doing all these things. It was really the Constitution was decided that if it wasn't enumerated to the federal government, it fell to the states. But now we're federalizing everything. And we've got a problem in the fact, you know, and I remember Mick Mulvaney saying this when he was OMB director, we've got to change a culture in Washington where we view how much we care about something based on how much we spend, rather than do we actually get results in fixing whatever that problem is. And our problem right now is the motto of Washington, D.C. and Congress is don't just stand there, spend something. We did see more PPP fraud than we've currently spent in Ukraine during the Trump administration. Spending went up pretty significantly. It has been going up and going up. I've seen the proposals in which we would rid the federal government of the Department of Education, potentially the Department of EPA, you know, these kinds of organizations that were designed to make sure that we had standards, you know, at the federal level. And without those standards at the federal level, I guess, Mark, I have a question about even the preparation that we're doing of our children. And I don't think we're perfect there. Like we could have a whole conversation about education. (laughs) But if we look at the Department of Education, we get rid of it. We push it back to the states. How do we ensure the standards in which all children in America are actually going to be able to compete with the children of China, for example? Well, I think that pressure falls to the states. It falls to the localities. Uh, You know, when you elect your local school board, when you elect your local, uh, you know, your county officials or your state lawmakers, uh, you know, that's where education belongs. It belongs closest to the communities that are actually impacting, closest to 
the lawmakers that are closest to those people. And so setting federal standards has never necessarily been a winning proposition for that. What we need to do, and I worked for a couple of governors before I moved, you know, spent most of my career in state and local politics. And you get elected and defeated based on how well your kids are doing in schools, because even the federal government passes most of that money to the states that they then distribute. And I can tell you, you know, most governors around the country are, are busy trying to worry about economic development. How do you prepare your workforce? Well, that's education, whether it's K through 12 or even higher education. And so my question is, is why shouldn't we trust the lawmakers in those states or those local school boards to make those decisions that are best for them and realize that not what is best for California or Montana may be different than what are the needs of Virginia or my home state of Indiana. All of those needs are different. The technical requirements are different. The needs of the students are different. And uh, so let's let those local people do it rather than apply a one size fits all to all education, because clearly that's not showing it works. What I'm seeing right now is these debates at the federal level really seep in to the local debates in a really unfortunate and contentious way in which we've created a lot of division at the local level. So, for example, you know, we've got Glendale Public Schools in California. There's this big dispute over the teaching of sex ed. The root of the concern when I talk to parents is that they feel like their kids aren't learning to read or they're not learning math at the right level. And that's their concern. And yet what's happened is they've gotten spun up about, you know, sex ed. And so it ends up like literally there was a protest in which outside organizations got involved. It's like Antifa and the Proud Boys are fighting at a local school board meeting. And, you know, people are all concerned about trans kids. You know, unfortunately, in this country still today, more children are victim of sexual assault from a family member than we've got trans kids who are looking to transition. And those issues like reporting structures and making sure those kids are protected within the system are not prioritized because we've got these ugly, toxic debates at the federal government level. Do you think if there's a Republican administration and you push things local, if there's this continued rhetoric of like these trans kids are our problems or whatever, doesn't it seep into the local level? Well, ultimately, I think, you know, I mean, regardless of the debate, whether it's about trans students, whether it's about sex ed, whether it's about are we teaching enough reading, writing and arithmetic, which is should be core. Well, you would that think. should be the core. <laughs> you would yeah. think. And we started to see some of this happen. I know there were a number of school boards in Virginia. There were a number of school boards in Florida where actually the voters kicked out the existing members because they thought that they were focusing on the wrong things. And so I do believe that this is where we've had kind of an abdication of democracy where whether it's the teachers unions, whether it's the radical left, they've just kind of been elected to these school boards. They've become less responsive to the needs of the actual people they report to, which is the parents and serving those students. And now I think we see parents starting to reassert their authority, reassert their rights to decide what's going on in their kids' schools with their children. And so I'm actually encouraged by this, that if we get back to those basic principles of allowing local control 
you're going to see the school districts respond, whether it's with new academic programs that meet the needs of their specific population, whether it's uh, aligning along with the city or the county, the state of what we need to do to move our state forward and not having these things decided from Washington, D.C., but having them decided by parents electing school board members or at least school board members being responsive to the parents who they actually are the voice of and represent. Too many times I think these local school boards are more aligned with doing whatever the teachers union wants than they do with what the parents want. I think we need union reform. We need to be able to both with the police union and the teachers union, anyone who's non-performing, like if we have a bad teacher or a bad cop, their ability to impact our community is unrivaled in some ways. And it's the kids with the least, it's the communities with the least who are the ones who most are impacted. So I would like us to be able to figure out a way in which we pay the most competitive wages, but we have to exit non-performing teachers teachers in a faster way. You know, those things I think we could agree on. The charter stuff, which I know is a huge priority of America First, they've been talking about charters. We've seen that in the Los Angeles area, and it has not always worked. In fact, we've had a lot of lawsuits because you have some people who come in and they say they're going to run these charter schools, and then they end up, I mean, it's full of fraud and abuse. And then there's all these lawsuits, and it's cost the, you know, school so much. And like Galesburg, Illinois never would have been able to do a charter system. They had one school, period, (laughs) one high school, and that's it. And, you know, in some ways, I actually think that was the best thing because you had all of the parents, all of the involved parents, you know, making sure that everyone was getting the best education. I wonder if there aren't some compromises that are a little different than some of the priorities that the America First agenda is working on. What do you think about that? Well, I think the first thing is that, you know, when it comes to uh, to education, I, I'm not necessarily saying that we are just pro-charter. I think we're just pro-choice, whether that is in terms of uh, education choice. The irony is not lost on me, Mark, on being pro-choice. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I'm just going to say it. <laughs> we're definitely not pro-choice, but we are definitely school choice. <laughs> we are not pro-choice. We are definitely pro-school choice. <laughs> But that could be parochial schools, that could be technical schools, that could be public schools, and maybe in some places it's the school next door to the one that they're forced to go through by, you know, random lines drawn by the government on a map. The key is giving parents and students the choice to pick the school that best meets their educational needs, their best, their educational goals, and where they go. I mean, we don't force kids to go to colleges that the government chooses for them. We allow parents and students to say, this religiously based school is better for you than the public school, or maybe the technical school is better for you than the state public school system. And here are your government funds or your Pell Grants and your loans or whatever to be able to go support that. But when it comes to K through 12 education, You know, many are just like, no, you shall go to this school because that's where we drew the line on the map and whether it's good for you, not good for you. I mean, I'll go back to my own history. When I was going through that, there was a public high school in my hometown of Fort Wayne, Indiana, that had a television and radio program. The one I was supposed to go to had a planetarium. Very cool, but I wanted to go into radio and television. My parents had to move. We had to actually pick up, sell our house, move, buy a new house so I could go to the high school that best fit my educational needs. When really we moved about four or five miles, it wasn't a big deal. 
But why did we have to move to do that? God, Indiana had some cool programs. We actually taught driver's ed in Galesburg, Illinois, and a lot of places don't do that anymore. I have a big problem with that. Especially in Maryland. They're horrible drivers. <laughs> well, exactly. We really need to teach driving. But going back to this school board component, like, Mark, you and I can have this debate and we can find some resolution. What I'm seeing that's kind of toxic at our school board level is like, you know, it's almost like the AOCs and the Josh Hollies, and maybe both of them are willing to compromise, but they basically get to the school board and they only listen to the constituents they agree with. And then you have, you know, like our local school board, we have this woman who she's just so woke, which I don't think anybody's woke, but she like believes that she's woke, like says things like that. How do we change the conversation? And is the America First agenda interested in that at all at the federal level, changing the conversation so that we can actually find compromise? Well, that's a pretty big question there. You know, I mean, personally, and I think this may actually be something that you and I agree on is, you know, I think one of the biggest problems, and it's not necessarily part of the America First agenda, this is just in my personal opinion, I think one of the biggest problems we have in our country is gerrymandering by both parties, because our office holders at every level are really not worried about compromise and competing with the other side, they're more worried about winning an election on their own side, because if you get primaried, you know, that's where you could find a problem. If we had more, say, competitive districts, it might actually encourage compromise. It might encourage debate. And I had this discussion uh, on another broadcast uh, just recently. I think The pendulum always swings. It swings too far one way. It comes back, overcorrects, and eventually it settles somewhere in the middle. But I also think it's so important for folks, uh, you know, at home who are watching to stop treating politics and public service like a sport. Because we are so ingrained into our rooting for our side and hating the other side. And one of the things that I don't think we get enough of is to use the sports analogy that both teams come together after the game, they shake each other's hand, they say good game, and sometimes they pray together after the game. And all they see are folks like you and me and our friends in this industry fighting it out on cable television or fighting it out on the news or on podcasts. And they don't see us laughing together in the commercial breaks and agreeing with each other. And the fact that we actually get along and while we might snipe at each other on the air, we're actually friendly and and sometimes friends together off screen. And I think they're starting to treat people at home in their own social circles, in their own communities, like they see us performing on, on television. And that's bad. We've got to remember that even though we may disagree, we're still all Americans. Yeah, well, and it is. It's I hate that. That is kind of what would happen sometimes. And, you know, different networks are different to different people, right? So, like, for you going on uh, NBC or something, it's probably a similar experience to me going on a Fox, where, like, off-air, everybody is very jovial. On-air, they're like, you know, Johanna, why are you the spawn of Satan? Mark, you know, why are you locking kids in cages? (laughs) And, And it doesn't move the conversation forward. Over the course of the Trump administration, 
situation, there were some strong opinions on both sides. I mean, Trump came in and said, you know, that there was rot and he was going to make America great. And then you had a bunch of Democrats who said they were going to be the resistance. And basically, neither of them really got anywhere on some things. But there were a lot of emotions that showed. And one of those, you know, in the aftermath of George Floyd, I think any of us who sit through the duration of time that, you know, someone was in the process of killing someone without intervention can see that that was wrong. And we still have a problem going back to rooting out, you know, bad teachers and bad police with equality in our country. There's been this huge initiative on the right to rid the country of diversity and inclusion programs. And for me, I mean, going back to the woke, I don't think anybody's woke. I think we see, you know, the world through our own eyes and we can try to see it through someone else's eyes. But I just wonder, you know, because there has been so many struggles in America for people from like, really, we've never reconciled from slavery. Why is the big push against DEI and what is the goal and the outcome that America First is looking for, especially in going after companies that are putting in place just the ability to listen to their employees? Well, I think the one fundamental difference between uh, what I will call the woke left and maybe um, you could call it generally the America First movement is that I think we seek equal opportunity. The woke left seeks equal outcome. And I think that is a fundamental difference. I I am all for making sure that everyone, regardless of your color, your creed, your religion, your your sex, whatever, have equal opportunity to the American dream, whether that is in through education, whether that is through job interviews, whether that is through training and opportunities. But when we start setting quotas for whom we have to have, you're basically legalizing discrimination and it's basically discrimination. I actually believe our country's got to get back to Dr. Martin Luther King's dream, where we don't judge people by the color of their skin, I would add to that, or their sexuality, or their gender, or their religion, but we actually judge people by the content of their character, the content of what they can actually offer. And equal opportunity does not mean equal outcome. But bias does exist, right? Like, I I saw it myself, you know, a woman would say something a man would say something, it would be judged differently. I don't like it. You know, I don't accuse people of doing it on purpose, but it does exist. So like teaching us those kinds of programs that are just like trying to help us understand our own bias so that we are judging the content of the character. What's wrong with those kinds of programs? Well, I don't have a problem with obviously trying to overcome and combat bias, but I don't think you combat the problems that we face with diversity or discrimination with more discrimination. I don't think that's the answer. And and as I think we have proven throughout our history, and it's in our founding documents, that we seek to be a more perfect union. We never have been a perfect union. We probably never will be a perfect union. But I do believe that the founding of our country, the the ultimate goal of our country is to always strive to be a more perfect union, which means we need to combat inherent biases. We need to always strive to do more. But again, what means do we use to get there? And I just don't think 
legalizing discrimination or promoting discrimination against one race to offset the discrimination of another race is the answer. I think we just have to call it discrimination in all forms bad. So the federal government has had programs in place in which they give priority to women and minority-owned businesses. What happens with a Republican president in, you know, 2025, if that happens, what happens to those government contracts? Well, I mean, I, obviously I can't speak for a future administration or, or for any future president or campaign. But what would you all recommend? Well, I think we obviously encourage and grow those programs, not because we're mandating you have to do this. It is an encouragement to be more inclusive and help many of these companies get started, get the next step. And so I think, obviously, especially when you're dealing with, you know, large government contractors, which are generally speaking, you know, well-established, long-formed companies that have been around forever, by encouraging them, by actually, in, you know, incentivizing them to partner with up-and-coming developing companies, many of those are obviously minority, women-owned businesses, veteran-owned businesses. I do think that helps them get a leg up because, as you well know from your time here in Washington, D.C., the big companies have their powerful lobbyists. They have their powerful interest to make sure they get their contracts. This is helping the little guy break in and get that start. Again, we're trying to give you opportunity. I, you've got to still perform, but we're at least helping to give you the opportunity to get in the door, which is what I think the important outcome is. My problem with federal government contracts often was not, you know, we were awarding them to a woman or a minority owned business that not enough companies were competing because, you know, for whatever reason, it was very difficult and time consuming to put together the RFP. They didn't know that it existed. Are there various mechanisms in which you guys are exploring changing anything like government contracts that would open them up to smaller businesses. I heard what you said about making sure that big government contractors are are including some of the smaller ones. And I think Democrats agree with that. That's a huge initiative in California even. But other than that, how can we get more companies to compete for these big government contracts? Well, I think the first thing we have to do, and this is more of a broad sense, not specifically just about government contracting, is we have to start eliminating all these government regulations. I mean, the amount of regulation that we are putting on America's businesses, and that includes the small mom and pops all the way up to you know the global conglomerates, we've got to remove regulation. And that was one of the, I think, the most successful things that we saw during the Trump administration. I remember the goal was to eliminate, I believe, two regulations for every new one. And we ended up around seven, 11, somewhere in there, regulations that were removed for every new one that was added. And it saved billions of dollars for companies, and especially for the, some of those small mom and pops, some of those small developing companies, up and coming companies, removing that barrier, removing the time, removing the money you have to contract out, usually to a lawyer or usually to some sort of consultant, really frees them up to do what they do best and then hopefully to be able to actually dedicate those resources, not to government paperwork, but to going out and seeking new opportunities, whether that is through state or local government contracts or ultimately federal government contracts. The thing is we've got to encourage competition, encourage growth, where all these regulations are just holding down economic growth. As long as we don't rid the country of the regulations that like 
you know, allow for clean drinking water and the like. I think there are some regulations that are pretty important. But going back to let's imagine this, you know, Republican president in 2025, I have a hard time believing, given the chaos of the Republican House, that they will control the House. So it's most likely there would be some level of divided government. And that's been pretty consistent for a while now. Biden has worked across the aisle on infrastructure. He's trying on immigration. What would the Republican president do coming into office to work across the aisle with Democrats? Well, if Democrats are in control, you're going to have to. There's just no two ways around it. And that's also a two-way street. It's not just will a Republican, future Republican president, work with a Democrat-controlled House or Senate, it's will they work with him or her, whomever that president is. We've seen that there's not been a lot of interest from Democrats from working with President Trump going back to uh, when they controlled the House of Representatives. Sure, they got done what had to be done, whether it was trying to keep the government open or budgets and things like that, but there was no real effort to do anything beyond that. And that's, I think, goes back to my earlier thing. It's because most of those Democrats are probably more concerned about working with a Republican president and being primaried than they are about some future, you know, general election opponent. And that's true on both sides as well. But I think the House is more challenging than uh, winning control of the Senate. But I wouldn't put the House out of reach just for the simple fact that, you know, the one fundamental difference between 2020 and 2024 was Joe Biden didn't have a record in 2020 that you could really run against. I was obviously on the 2020 uh, presidential campaign as director of strategic communications. He has a record now. And if you look at the real clear politics average of just about every single issue, Joe Biden's disapproval is 60, 70 percent on the economy, energy, immigration, crime, world affairs, Israel, Ukraine, all of it is negative. And that will translate down ballot as people are looking to get back to low gas prices and, a, and growing paychecks. Well, and I want to get into Joe Biden's record. Um, there's a lot that probably isn't fully recognized yet. Um, I, I, I'm saying this with all honesty. I think, you know, some of the infrastructure investments haven't happened. The Inflation Reduction Act, you know, over the course of time has actually helped. We saw that, you know, last year was, despite I believed there would be a recession, a pretty powerful economic story, even though it wasn't an economic story for those who have the least, and that's the biggest problem. I really enjoyed our conversation. The last thing, Mark, you talked about, you know, Democrats and Republicans, and I think there's a lot of fear, you know, of the other, <laughs> which I think is perpetuated by our media. Should Democrats fear what Republicans are planning? And specifically, you know, there's a lot of fear on the choice issue from women, from individuals who want to be the ones who determine their own health outcomes. What should they fear the Republicans are going to do when it comes to abortion or should they? Well, I think, you know, the fundamental uh, decision in Dobbs did not eliminate abortion. It turned it back to where it was supposed to be. And it's always belonged in our Constitution to lawmakers. It belongs in the hands of the people's elected representatives and not in the hands of nine lifetime appointed jurists who are not accountable 
to the people. They're only accountable, obviously, to their own view and ultimately the Constitution. So you're, I think you're always going to continue to have this debate in, uh, you know, across state legislatures in all the various states. And I think the laws there are going to reflect that. From a conservative, from an America first, uh, you know, priority, I think we've been handling this issue wrong for for many for many decades. Obviously, I wanted to see Roe versus Wade overturned because I believe in the Constitution and I believe the laws are made by lawmakers, not by judges. But I also think we've been doing this wrong because if you truly want to combat abortion, if you truly want fewer abortions in America, then I think we have to get to the underlying cause, which is not dealing with the problem after it occurs, we need to to reduce the number of unwanted pregnancies. Because by and large, not entirely, and I I grant you that, but the overwhelming majority of abortions are not from people who wanted to get pregnant or who expected to get pregnant. They are due to unexpected circumstances, unexpected outcomes. And so by increasing access to contraception, by increasing education, by making better choices in terms of how people are conducting their personal lives, I think we reduce the number of unwanted pregnancies by the very nature. We reduce the number of abortions, which should be our ultimate goal. And then on the other side, on the backside of it, I mean, I think Most people in the polling I have all seen believe that if that choice has to be made, it needs to be made early. And the one thing we can agree for is that these late stages, seven, eight, nine months, that's too far. And that's too long to make that decision with rare exceptions when we're dealing with, uh, you know, with medical issues. That's what I was going to say. I mean, Mark, my understanding is most of those are, you know, rare situations where there is a medical issue. Then we should be able to outlaw it along with some certain exceptions. But Democrats can't have that because they're all on the record supporting abortion up to the moment of birth. And I think that's and the the overwhelming majority of Americans, according to all the polls I've seen, think that's just too far with acknowledging those rare medical exceptions. Well, I think the Democrats believe that decision should be left up to the doctor and the individuals involved instead of having to call a government regulator and, you know, ask Bob Good (laughs) for for permission to, uh, you know, seek their medical outcome. I think that we can absolutely agree on enhancing uh, access to contraception. And I hope that the Republicans who believe that and want to work with the other side get elected. And similarly with Democrats, I hope the Democrats can find some common ground with Republicans. I really, truly, you know, going back to what you said, I think you're right. There are some talking about Bob Good. He's come to mind a couple times because he was on the podcast and I like Bob Good. But he also told me that he absolutely did not believe that he could negotiate with Democrats. And I think it comes down to getting primaried by the right and getting primaried by the left. So maybe we can find some agreement on term limits and on gerrymandering. And if we could, it would probably be better for America. I'm really grateful that you joined me today on Press Advance. Oh, thank you. It's always great talking to you. It was great talking to Mark. And it's true what he said. Sometimes I'm on set with Republicans and the best discussions that we have 
are during the commercial breaks where people let down their guard and just have a conversation. I'm trying to bring those conversations out to the open with Press Advance. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. We are going to dig deeper into the Biden administration's policies, the initiatives, up and coming leaders, everything that you want to know in the coming weeks. If you want to hear these discussions, please subscribe to Press Advance. If you have ideas of what you want to hear about, please find me on social media at Johanna Masca. You know that our campaign motto in Iowa for President Obama was respect, empower, include. And I want to see a little bit more of that in politics. As always, my sincere thanks to Situation Room Studios for providing the talented team behind the scenes led by Christine Barada.